Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. The Mexican artist Frida Kahlo came to the United States in 1930 at the age of 23 with her husband, Diego Rivera. The art historian and professor Celia Starr knew that period in Frida's life was crucial to her evolution as an artist. Since 2006, she's been sleuthing out details. The result of her efforts is Frida in America, the creative awakening of a great artist. Uh, what was it that prompted you to begin back in the early part of this century examining <laughs> this subject? I honestly wrote the book I wanted to read. I know this is a cliche, but it is an honest answer. And I'd been really following Frida Kahlo's art from the 1980s, when at that time not much was known about her in the United States. And then I was looking at, you know, what was happening in 1983, the first biography by Hayden Herrera came out and I loved it. I, you know, ate it up. And then I kept following her career into the early 2000s. And most books I felt did not capture the complexity or power of Frida Kahlo, the person and the artist, particularly because I had this first encounter in the 1980s that was very powerful. I was riveted by a painting called Self-Portrait with Monkey. I was in a darkened art history classroom. And here before me was a brown-skinned woman with her hair pulled up so tightly, it elongated her forehead, making her look to me like an Aztec warrior. And there's this red ribbon, you know, that's entwined in her black hair. And it comes down and it, it cascades over her shoulder. And then it loops around a spider monkey perched on her shoulder. And both of them are standing out in nature with this wall of foliage behind them. And it was just like, wow, you know, who is this? I'd never seen anything like it before. And honestly, you know, modern male artists who portray women in nature, which is a common theme, often make them nude or partially nude with averted eyes. And this is really the perfect setup for a voyeur. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the things that stood out to me was Frida was not doing this. She was wearing clothes. Her eyes, you know, burrow into ours and she exudes strength. So I wanted to know more about this artist and, and woman. And what I discovered over the years as I started to study art history in graduate school, and then I got out and was teaching classes. And what I kept finding was that the predominant narrative about Frida Kahlo and her art was that she suffered from emotional pain stemming from her marriage to the acclaimed muralist Diego Rivera. And she suffered physical pain due to polio and then a near fatal bus accident. So every time a new exhibition, a book, or even an article came out, I couldn't wait you know, to see it, to read it. I was really hungry for new perspectives. Is it safe to say that that painting you saw in an art history class set you on the path to earning your PhD, becoming an art history, an art professor? 
It was definitely one of them. Yes. Mm. I had a, a couple of powerful experiences. One was taking an African art class, right? That was my first modern art class. And I was not even an art history major. It's safe to say this is a lifelong fascination and you set out on this quest, which took you all over to many archives, to many locations. Uh, you unearthed and got access to diaries. Uh, let's talk a little bit about how you wrote this story about Frida in the United States. You know, I honestly, I knew this was going to be a daunting task. And it was because while we knew that she'd been in the United States, we knew about some of her art, no one had pieced together this history. So, you know, when I started finally thinking, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. I'm going to take it on. I knew it was going to be hard. So because she was in San Francisco, that was easy because I you know, live in the Bay Area, San Francisco, Bay Area, mm-hmm. each in San Francisco. So I started there. And, and one of the uh, documents I really wanted to get a hold of were uh, some journals that a fellow artist of, of Frida's, Lucien Block, had kept during this period. They became good friends. She even, Lucien Block, lived with Frida and Diego in, in Detroit, and and so you know she was keeping track of everything, which Frida at that time did not keep a journal. And and so I had the her her granddaughter, Lucienne Block's granddaughter, who also is named Lucienne. She had the the journals, and I had her phone number, and I was wanting to call her. But before I got up the nerve, I actually went to a party. A friend of mine was having a party, and she lived in the same area of Northern California that this person lived in. And uh, at the party, my friend says, oh, did you get a chance to talk to Lucianne Allen? And I said, what? You know Lucianne Allen? <laughs> she said, yeah, she just left the party. And I said, no, I didn't get a chance to talk to her. <laughs> and so then uh, because this is like uh, near Sea Ranch, uh, in, it's in uh, Gualala, very rural area of Northern yes. California. So I was spending the night at my friend's. And so anyway, the next morning, my friend called Lucienne Allen and said, hey, I have this friend who's writing this book about you know Frida Kahlo. And anyway, I ended up going over there. We had a great conversation. I set up a time to go back to talk to her and getting those journals was the first important step in starting to piece together some of the specifics of what happened on this three-year journey for Frida Kahlo. And then the second big break was I found that there were letters that Frida had written home during this trip, and they were housed at the, um, the library of the Museum for Women in the Arts in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. National Museum of Women in the Arts. And so then I I worked out a, a research trip and I I went there every day for over a week and I just photographed these letters. I mean there were hundreds of letters. And so then the big task there was to bring them home and really go through them, you know, with a fine tooth comb and see what was there and have I also hired a professional translator. I really wanted my Spanish is you know like I can make out enough to see what's in the letter but I wanted I wanted uh, professional translations of somebody who not only knew the language, but knew Frida. And luckily I found that in uh, somebody, Christina Vaisus. And so she went to work translating all the letters. And anyway, that, that really helped to unlock some of the important elements of what was Frida thinking, feeling, doing, you know, in this time period. And that's the kind of nuance that 
that has been missing in other depictions of her life. And it's also the kind of nuance that you can only get from those kinds of materials, right? That you right. That, that a researcher needs to, to access to be able to bring to life somebody who's long right. dead. Right, and, and also I just wanna underscore, that's particularly true for this period of her time in the United States from 1930 to 1933, which is so important for her as a uh, person and an artist. It's really when she has her breakthrough as an artist and comes into her own style, her own personal and taboo subject matter. Mm -hmm. And that's why you zeroed in. I thought that was another interesting thing about this, that you didn't attempt a cradle to grave biography of Frida, although that is you 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 sliced her life in this in your choice of topic here. Correct. And I did have to figure out how to incorporate aspects from her life before the U.S. and then a little bit after, even though, yes, I wanted to zero in on this one uh, time period. So I don't I do go back in time for a couple of chapters to fill readers in on what was happening before she comes to the United States. And then the um, epilogue you know, gives a, a kind of overview of what happened after she goes back to Mexico in 1933. Right. Of course. No. And I think the best slice of life books are are comprehensive in that way without being a, you know, old school chronology of some of a, of a life. Yeah. So right. absolutely right. do that. And you, you paint the picture too, of the time in which she was living yes. very vividly, which is also crucial. Yes, yes. That was really important to me because there was a lot that was going on in the United States between 1930 and 33 in terms of the economic depression, racial strife, uh, workers' rights and, and protests happening. And nobody had, had really taken that on. I kept wondering, you know, why, how did this impact Frida Kahlo? And, and just to give you one example, when I was at uh, Lucianne Allen's, her, so her grandmother was a photographer as, and, a, and a painter, a muralist, as, as well as keeping this journal. And, and one of the photographs that I saw at, at Lucianne Allen's that I'd never seen published before was of, of Frida standing in a train station in Arkansas under a sign that said, quote, for Negroes. Mm. And I, I, I was really taken with this. And I said to her, I said to Lucianne Allen, what is this? And she said, oh, this is when my grandmother and, and Frida were traveling by train and they stopped in Arkansas and, and Frida insisted my grandmother take this photograph because she was so disgusted by the Jim Crow laws at that time. Mm. And I thought, wow, okay, here is what I'm looking for because I want to see how did that uh, racist system impact Frida, who was, who was so passionate about workers' rights and, and uh, racial equality. So anyway, that was one piece of information or image that I could take. And then I had to do a lot of research to try to understand that image in, in its context. Right. And similarly with the Detroit chapter, mm -hmm. uh, I found that fascinating, having been to the Detroit Institute of Arts and seen the famous Diego Rivera murals. Uh, it never occurred to me the backstory of uh, of Frida being there as well and what happened to her there. Can you talk a little bit about forensic? Because most many people would be familiar with the murals and not ever think once about the Frida component of them. Right. And, and just, you know, visually, 
that stands out because if you go to the Detroit Institute of Arts and you walk into this courtyard, what do you see? You see Diego Rivera's murals, which are stunning and are in this beautiful area where the, the natural light comes through. And, and really there you're surrounded by these murals, which emphasize Ford, Ford industries. So there's no reason for you to be thinking Frida Kahlo when you look at them. However, they, she had a studio that was set up for her in the Detroit Institute of Arts, and she would go there and paint. And she created one of her uh, most important political paintings called Self-Portrait on the Borderline between Mexico and the United States. Mm -hmm. And there she she's really, you know, talking. She, and she stands, by the way, in the middle on a, on a border marker. And so you see her in the middle. And then it's really about many things. But one is about her navigating these two different cultures that she's now been in for a couple of years. And she's at this point gone by train back to Mexico because her mother had been ill and then come back. So she's she's been on a couple of different train rides coming to the U.S., then going back to Mexico. She's experienced uh, the border itself. Also, repatriation was taking place at this time where, uh, you know, people of Mexican descent were being repatriated back to Mexico due to the economic depression and anti-Mexican feeling. So there's a lot that's going on in this period. Plus, Frida ends up having a, a, a miscarriage. She's pregnant, but she has a, a, a miscarriage, which is uh, life-threatening. And it was a very traumatic experience. And so there's a lot that's happening in Detroit politically, uh, emotionally, and also then, of course, affecting her marriage. And so she makes one of her most political paintings, as I said, but then also starts taking on what we would consider taboo subject matter, mm -hmm. uh, a woman having a miscarriage, uh, which really was just not done in art. So she, but she makes herself incredibly vulnerable in this painting as she's lying on this bed in Henry Ford Hospital, although it's out, we don't see the hospital, but we see the hospital bed. And she's very small, her body's very small, but she's in a pool of blood. And there's a huge tear on her face. And so these two paintings, I think, really help to encapsulate where Frida Kahlo is going as a person and an artist, because self-portrait on the borderline, you see her standing tall. She's a proud, you know, Mexican woman. And she's um, she's even a provocateur, because if you look closely, you notice that she's not wearing a bra and her nipples are visible. She's she's interacting with the upper crust of the Detroit area. That would have been outlandish, you know, at that time. But she wears it proudly. And then on the other hand, there's this image of her, as I say, incredibly vulnerable and in, in a pool of blood, nude. But Frida Kahlo, to me, in both instances, shows vulnerability and strength. But even in the vulnerability of this painting called Henry Ford Hospital, there's strength there because not many people at that time, certainly not female artists, had the strength to show that kind of vulnerability. You've amassed all this research. Were you writing along the way or you you talk in your acknowledgments, you give a nod to your writing group and the importance of that. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about how you how you took everything you you learned and, and discovered on these trips and in, in the archives and stitched it together and how the writing group influenced that. So the writing part, it was 
very important to me because I had mostly written in a, an academic style. And when I started thinking about writing this book, I knew that I wanted to do something different. I didn't want it to be a book for academics. I wanted it to be for a general readership. I mean, it could include academics, but I didn't want to write in the language of academics. I wanted to take all my skills as a researcher, as an art historian who understands art on a very deep level, uh, understands these different art movement styles, et cetera, understands Frida's art very well. But, but at the same time, I wanted to write a story. And of course, biographies are stories of people's lives and, and what they do with their lives. In this case, her art as well as her life. And so the, honestly, I, I saw the book before I wrote it. And I was seeing different images in my mind, different scenes of her on the train coming to San Francisco, her interacting with Henry Ford and calling him out on being an anti-Semite, uh, hanging out with, you know, uh, Lucien Bloch and, you know, other others as well. And so I thought, okay, I want to be able to write in a way that conveys this story and that allows readers to hopefully feel as if they're on this journey with Frida Kahlo. Mm -hmm. And so I started, I was reading at the time, I was reading books that you might consider create written in a creative nonfiction style. My mother had actually given me the book Seabiscuit, which uh -huh. I don't know why she gave it to me because I had no interest in uh, racehorses, but what I found was that I became really absorbed in this story. And I, I liked the way that Laura Hillman, Hill, Hill, Hillebrand, thank you. Right? I'm like, uh, Hillebrand uh, writes. And I was, I got really absorbed in this story. And I thought, wow, this is really great. And I thought, well, you know, if I could do this for readers who maybe don't know much about Frida Kahlo, but found the story absorbing, that would be wonderful, you know, because I think more people can, um, take a lot of inspiration from Frida Kahlo's story. So then it was, how do I write it though? And I just started, you know, working on my own. I took a, an online course through Stanford. And then right, a friend of mine, uh, Patricia Albers, uh, we started talking about a writing group. And so we formed this writing group together and it was instrumental in helping me to figure out my writing style. And so I was constantly, you know, we would, we would hand in chapters uh, one person would hand in a chapter, you know, each time for each. We met, I think, once about once a month. And so their feedback was invaluable. Mm. And so it helped me to to really learn how to to write in the style that I had imagined in my mind, but hadn't quite uh, figured out on the page. It's so interesting. Everything you're saying, one thing in particular strikes out, strikes me. Here you are. You, you have a doctorate, you're an expert in this subject, but you, the idea that you have to table your expertise in a particular subject after immersing years of your life in that subject, in order to explain it to me, you, the, the layperson art lover who loves biography and is very curious about women in history and has heard about Frida, couldn't even pronounce her last name correctly, but knows that she's, you know, important and revered. And that was so you had somebody like me in your mind, I think, probably without realizing it or, mm -hmm. or maybe because you did, because you had that smart group of women you were writing with who probably were pushing you how to explain this uh, known commodity to you to someone else. I'm not sure what my question right. is there, but right. that's what's hitting me as you're as you're speaking. Right. No, you're absolutely right. And so, 
you know, Patricia Albers has also written biographies of artists like Joan Mitchell and Tina Modati. Mm -hmm. And and then the other two in our group were uh, fiction writers. And so it was it was a great combination of expertise in terms of how to write biographies of artists and then fiction writing as as well. And so it helped me a lot because I wanted to use some of the tools of fiction in the sense of, you know, really thinking about scenes, like how do you set up a scene? How do you create this fuller picture of who Frida Kahlo was? Right. What are, what are some of those tools? And so I, yeah, I wanted to, to really explore all that. And so they helped me tremendously. Well, and that's, that's another critical key is that you've described is, is thinking in scenes and not in the clunky recitation of facts. And that's, that's the thing that seemed, and it sounds like you were doing that throughout and all the travel you were doing, mm -hmm. um, I'm sure was helping you paint those pictures, so to speak, yes. so well. Yes. And for me, I, I really, I really get into the details. I need to see the places where people have been. And I, I went to, yes, I went to all the cities where Frida had been. So like I said, San Francisco was easy, but then made a few trips to Detroit and a few trips to New York. And I even tried to recreate that train trip I was mentioning earlier where yeah. Frida and Lucien Block go from Detroit. They go all the way to Mexico, but I went to Laredo uh, on the border because they got stuck in Laredo for about uh, 12 to 14 hours due to flooding. So I took my my daughter with me. I think she was in about third grade at the time, and we went on this this uh, journey together. And it was it was wonderful, you know. To I was like really looking at the terrain as we're going on in the train, and and then really was you know trying to understand what Laredo was like in the 30s when we were there. So I went to every place that she lived. I also did, of course, trips to Mexico. So this was a project that involved also a cross cultural examination on on some level, even though. It's focused on the U.S. How did it feel to be done? I mean, you're never done with the subject. It lives with you forever, of course. But how, how did it feel once you delivered it and have this? It's a beautiful book. It was really well designed, too. You know, it, initially, it, it honestly felt, I felt very vulnerable initially. You know, a strange feeling to, yeah, after so many years, because I've worked on it for about 10 years. And to say, wow, I've, okay, I've turned it in now, now what? And part of the nervousness is, and the feeling of vulnerability is how are people going to re respond to it? You know, because I, I really did put my heart and soul into it. And I wanted to do right by the material, by Frida. And so I, I, don't, I didn't know if I had succeeded in what I'd set out to do. So it really wasn't until I started getting feedback from people that I thought, okay, Great. You know what? A lot of people are responding to this story and they are feeling it in the way that I had intended and then in other ways as well. But uh, initially, I just felt I felt very vulnerable. I can I can imagine. I know a lot of people who are academics. It, it's a whole different universe that you're stepping into when you're writing mm -hmm. a book like this. And that that would add to the vulnerability, I'd imagine. Yeah. Yes. Yes, for sure. I think it's exciting that it's out there. And uh, what has what has been the reaction from students when you show that? Do you, I assume you use this in class. The reaction has been very positive. I've I've really been 
overwhelmed really with the, the feedback. I mean, I still am getting a lot of people wanting to, to talk to me about the book. Um, actually, the, the BBC did a, a docu-series that just came out. The second part aired last night, and the second part is completely devoted to her time in the United States. And they interviewed me for it. And I have to say, I watched the second part yesterday, and it was really emotional for me because no one has dealt with her time in the U.S. in a documentary before on such a scale. I mean, people mention it here and there, but, um, you know, they told me it was because of my book that they, you know, they really devoted it, the second part to it. And that, that, I don't know, that, it's hard to even put into words, but it's very, I'm, I'm very honored and humbled at the same time. And my students, they seem to really like the book. And I tell them, I had them in mind in part when I wrote it, because again, in, in teaching art history, I've become more and more aware that I am telling stories, even though I hadn't thought of it in that way before I wrote my book. But, you know, the artists who I choose to show in class and talk about in class, I am creating a narrative. And so I've just become more conscious of that and also becoming more conscious as many professors that it's hard to keep students' attention these days for very long because of you know, social media, et cetera. And so I find that if I talk more about stories, they, they are more engaged and I take up certain issues as, as well with those stories. And the book, then we engage with lots of different issues that come up in the book and how, again, the time period of the 30s sadly mirrors our own time period in many ways. And so they can relate to that and and they like to engage with these issues. And there's no greater validation than knowing something as you did for so many years at your core and doing the work and finding it out and conveying it to other people who get it, who now you've changed the perception of your subject in history. That's very exciting. And that's why I think people write biography, right? It's exactly. Yeah. I just wanted to highlight this area. I wanted to complicate the narrative because Frida Kahlo is a complicated person and she's a complicated artist. Well, congratulations. And thank you so much for your time. This has really been fascinating to talk with you. So I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you talking to me. Celia Starr is the author of Frida in America, The Creative Awakening of a Great Artist, published by St. Martin's Press in 2020. We spoke on March 17, 2023, via Zoom. You can hear more about bio on our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles, California. Alani Hodge created our theme music. Until next time, thanks so much for listening.